just kind of dive into the idea of, um, you know, this book of the Bible that is the largest uh, book of the Bible. If you, you know, turn uh, to anywhere, usually in the middle, uh, it kind of ends up usually falling on Psalms. And, and yet it seems uh, just kind of have a, 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 a kind of disjointed kind of uh, put together or you're not kind of understand how do you, how do you do this? How do you read this? And so uh, kind of is our intro into the idea of Psalms is just the idea of how do you read the, how do you read them? Like what is the intent or the, the purpose of the Psalms and, and what is it as we are gonna spend some time looking at some of them, uh, how, how, do you, how do you read this? Well, uh, when you think about the Psalms, I want you to think about a, a literary temple. And uh, that idea of when you are uh, thinking about the temple in the Old Testament, it was the place that the Jews believed they would go <coughs> to be into the presence of God. And so when they would go there, there would be uh, the, the priests performing rituals. There would be uh, magnificent artwork or, or different uh, visual things uh, that would happen. There would be uh, smells of incense and different things that uh, some of it would be to, to take out the nasty smells, but others of it would be to draw your senses in. There would be an experience that would happen as they would go to the temple. Now, some of the psalms are written for the actual temple and for them to actually perform in a sense of, a, of an act of worship in the temple. Yet other of the psalms were written because there was times in the Old Testament when the temple wasn't there yet. In fact, when David's writing of the psalms, there, the temple wasn't even built yet. So he was uh, uh, imagining what the temple would be like. And so when he uses words about being in the God's presence or uh, being in his temple, he's, he's imagining those things of happening. Other times, the, the nation of Israel was in exile and the temple wasn't there. The temple was destroyed. And so they were thinking back to that. But all of it was designed about this idea for us to be in God's presence and immersed in his story. And that's so vital for us, even if you think about today, about the idea that we question very often whether or not God's presence is real. And not only do we question his presence being real because we don't feel it or something else is happening going on, but we also are just inundated with stories and narratives being told to us. It's one of the more fascinating things that is happening. It's been happening throughout all of history, but we see it at such a different rate and pace now because of technology and social media that a story can just grab a hold and just can be run with whether it's true or not true. You know, one of the things that I, I've picked up and noticed even in from my uh, kids is that uh, their fear of doing something that gets caught on video that potentially could go viral is a real anxiety. I, I never had that as a kid. I mean, I could do a lot of dumb things and I did a lot of dumb things as a kid and they were never caught on video and never were projected out into the entire world for it to be seen. Yet kids today have that constant fear because it's a reality for them. And a narrative can then be played on something dumb or something even accidental that happened to them that now paints them a certain way. News medias, politicians, sports, Hollywood, everyone is kind of painting a certain narrative 
And it's tough sometimes for us to know or for us to understand whether or not we're uh, believing or putting faith or trust or ideas or even passions into the right narrative. And so the Psalms has this ability to be something that is written to us that reminds us of us entering into the presence of God and yet tells of his story and that narrative that we can put our hopes and trust in. The fact is our view of God and how that then paints the world we see is something that a believer should be thinking through every day of their lives. Every day of our lives, we should be asking the question, how do I view God and how does that paint the world that I see? How does that, how does that make me make decisions on what do I do with my family? How does that make decisions on what do I do at work? How does that make decisions on how do I see other people? How does that make decisions to say, what do I give my hearts and affections towards? You see, how you view God and how you see the world is gonna then ultimately impact your, your passions and your, your affections and the things that you give yourself to. Oftentimes, this is where we find that we are uh, very much the idol worshipers in this moment <laughs> because our view of God and of how we see the world and the view of other things and narratives that come into play, we begin to give our hearts and passions towards things. And, and, and we've got to ask ourselves, are they the right things to give our hearts and passions to? You see, our view of God is, is something that even Augustine would call this as disordered love. And he would tell us this in the idea that he believed our problem isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things, that's often we, or it is we often love the right things in the wrong order. And for us to know that, to grasp that, the Psalms helps to uh, engage and to, it, to remind and to help us to, to get our, 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 our eyes and our hearts, our mind and our head, or our minds and our hearts back into that, is this the, the right thing to love in the right order, because loving things in the wrong order leads to that idolatry we were speaking of. You see, our view of God, if it's all just our hearts, it can be warm and comforting and practical, but it can lack a substance because it, doesn't, it, it will be subject to every new fad that comes along and will not hold up in hard times. But if our view of God is just head only, it can be cold and dry and barren and, and have really practical value. And so the Psalms, specifically what we're going to look at here this morning is Psalms 139 is going to show us a pattern for how we can engage all the Psalms. Now, as we'll find out, there are Psalms of worship, there's a Psalms of remembrance, there's some Psalms of, of, of lament, there's different, but, but the idea of the Psalms is to create this reminder of God's presence and to telling of his story. Psalm 139 is a perfect psalm that many of us are familiar with because of a few passages in there, but it gives us this overall idea that can follow through with that. In fact, this psalm was directly <coughs> written for the idea of worship that would draw us in. So it's this idea of a view of God that draws us in, that tells of his presence, and yet also reminds us of the story that he is telling in it. Psalm 139, as we dive into it, begins in verse one. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot obtain it. David, as he's writing in this psalm, we're going to see the idea of really three attributes, characteristics of, of who God is. His, as I always say, omniscience, okay, it's omniscience, God's omniscience, the idea of all-seeing and all-knowing, his omnipresence everywhere, and his omnipotence is all-powerful. He's going to correlate it into the idea later on in the, in the fact of just being born and the fact of being come together, the fact of being created shows in that. The idea that God didn't need a recipe to be able to, to create us, okay? You, you want to make anything in your home, you need a, a recipe to follow so that you have the knowledge to be able to do that. God, God didn't need that. God also didn't need to, to, to be able to have a, 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 you know, some kind of a, a machine to be able to do it, okay? He, he, he was able to, to do that, and he was able to, to, to be able to create us because he's all-powerful. But if I'm creating something in the kitchen, I need a recipe, not only that, I need a, an oven. I need the power to be, able to, to, to be able to create that thing. And then not only that, but God is everywhere and all the time. And so every single life that has been created throughout all of history, God was a part of that. And he's able to do that because of these characteristics of that. Now David begins this psalm speaking about this omniscience of God. And it's not just the idea of just split, you know, spilling out doctrine, but he's confessing it in these wonders and as adoration that he has for God in it. Now when we think about this idea that God is all-knowing, all-seeing, we think about it this idea way, and A.W. Tozer says that God can, <clears throat> did not have to learn from anyone. God cannot learn. He couldn't be God or in any other manner received his mind, knowledge that he did not possess or his possession for eternity. He's, he would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of God, we must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though the teacher is of an archangel uh, and someone who would, uh, other than the most high God, maker of heaven and earth. God didn't have to be able to consult with somebody. He's all-knowing in that. And this, this knowledge for David is so wonderful for him, it's so lofty for him to obtain it. I mean, think about when you learn something new. I know for some of us, it's sort of like you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? But it's still possible to learn something new. When we learn something new, it almost is like it opens up something that was closed before. Something that we, we, we didn't know or we didn't understand, and now all of a sudden we understand it, and now it becomes new knowledge to us, and it opens up maybe new opportunities, new horizons, new relationships, new understandings, all these wonderful things that it opens up, and yet for God, he, he knows that all. And so we can, we can think about it, but we can't, we can't get our arms around this. We can't, we can't come to grips with it, and for David, this was something that, that, was, that was wonderful for him to think about. That God is so all-knowing and all-seeing that, that there's nothing new opened up for him. There's nothing he didn't have to, to, to maybe think about to be able to put it together that he just knew it. Yet on the flip side of that, 
<coughs> we think about this idea that this understanding of, of God's knowledge and the perfection of that, it's disturbing to think about as well when we think about it too. The fact is that the idea for some is we consider God knowing everything, he knows everything about us. There's nothing hidden to God. That our hearts are opened up, our desires are opened up, and all-knowing God is really threatening to a lot of people. In fact, we don't want to think about that. We don't want to ponder that because that means that God knows all my thoughts and my desires. God knows everything that I've hidden in the closet. God knows what's going on even when no one else around me does. For any person, this is powerful. This knowledge feels, feel, feels frightening and with good reasons because God is gonna judge us on those things that no one else knows about. God's gonna hold us accountable to our thoughts and our desires. And yet as we see with David, this thought it doesn't cause him fear. In fact, this thought for David brings to him this idea of shelter and comfort. This idea for David comes to this knowledge that it is a refuge for him. You see, this, this thought, this idea for David in this moment carries him on to be thinking through now in verse 7 through 12, where should I go from your spirit? Where should I flee from your presence? David, thinking through that God knows everything and sees everything, he's not threatened by it, it's not fearful, but he, he, it draws him in. It, it's, a, it's a comforting thing. Now begins to ponder, there's nowhere I can even go to escape God. If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make a bed and she hold, you are there. If I, if I go on the wings in the morning and dwell the uttermost of the sea, even in there, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Surely I, I will say the darkness can cover me, the light or the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is so bright uh, as the day, the darkness is as light to you. David, meditating on this thought, <coughs> recognizes that, that God is, is not only all-seeing and all-knowing, but he's everywhere all the time. I can't escape him. We've got stories in the Bible of people trying to do that, right? The classic Jonah, trying to run from God and the reality that he can't run from God. That our thoughts as we think that God is all-seeing and all-knowing is that then, well, I'm just going to run and I'm just going to hide from God. Uh, many of us love conflict in the sense not that we love it and to be able to, to deal with it, but we love it because it gives us an excuse to run and hide and we want to escape from it. Somehow uh, we, we believe in the idea of hide and seek is going to fix problems. And yet with God, there's no hiding. There's no ways to, to get around it. And as try as he might, he, he can't escape. And there's, there's not a fearful thing in this. There's, there, he's actually comforted by this. In fact, David lists three ways that he could go. Maybe if he could go up to heaven or down to, to Sheol, if he could go east to west, if he could hide in the darkness. And each one of them, he dismisses them. Well, David carries on in this thought and this idea of God. He says, From, for you formed my inner parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me unformed substance and your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed from me when, you, when as yet they were none of them. 
David now turns his idea towards uh, God's power and, and creation of life. David thinking that not only are all his thoughts and, and, and everything that he's ever desired known by God, that he can't escape from God, but yet even in this, that more practically, that he was formed by God in the womb of his mother. No wonder God knows David. No wonder God sees David. No wonder God, uh, can't, or David can't escape God because he was formed from the very beginnings by God. That he has a creator. It's one of the foundational beliefs of, uh, of, of what we stand on is that God is the creator of life. It's one of the foundational questions that you can ask anybody of, of really any belief or philosophy or religion to say, how did we get where we got to? How, how did we even come to existence? Many times you, you would hear someone that, that maybe has no belief in God would say, well, we got here by, by evolution, or we got here by chance, or we just got here randomly, and what does that do? It lays the foundation for the rest of their lives as being just something random, and the opportunity that no one really cares about them, or no one really sees them, or what they do doesn't really matter, and David is blowing that idea right out of the water by saying, from the very beginning of my life, from the very beginning of my existence, I was created by a creator who put me together fearfully and wonderfully made. And not only fearfully and wonderfully made, but the days of my lives were written out before me. That I have a, a purpose and an existence that Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter two and he says how wonderful and masterful is, is the artist who made me and I'm created for good works, I'm created for a, a purpose. The same thing David is saying here. And these verses <coughs> clearly uh, identify the idea of life and individually of a child that's still in its mother's womb. And he is speaking of all that life by made by God. It's fearfully and wonderfully made with a purpose from the moment a baby is in its mother's womb. And that's why, again, we have this idea of a whole life agenda. That all of life is valued and significant and dignified. And, and, and that we should treat life in that same manner because God has given to us life. And David recognizes this, uses this as his illustration to show these characteristics of God's omniscience and omnipotent and, and, and this omnipresence of the Lord. These beautiful pictures of what uh, David is saying, he comes back to this thought again of how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I could count them, then they would be more than the sand I awake, and I am still with you. Have you ever just had moments just where you're just, just captivated in all of who God is? You see, this is where I, I, I say sometimes that God's not mysterious, mysterious, he wants to be known. But yet at the same time, he's mysterious because as we know him, we can never get to the end of him. David, again, thinking about his own life, thinking about how uh, he was knit together fearfully and wonderfully in his mother's womb and how there is purpose in everything that, that has been going on in his life and that there's nowhere he can run or escape and that God knows everything about him. He begins to just, just, just be in marvel and awe of who God is. He begins to think about them all and he realizes he, if he got to the sum of them, it's more than the sand of the entire earth. 
I know David doesn't exactly know every grain of sand in the entire earth. He's using that as, a, as an illustration, as a, a kind of a metaphor for us to, to think that through. But just, just think about it, uh, just even, even in a moment, try to grasp the reality of that. If you ever just been at a beach and just sitting there and just soaking in the sun and your feet are playing in the sand or you reach down and you just grab it and you know, it's kind of that dry sand and you know, the wet sand's kind of yucky but you dry, get that dry sand it just kind of goes right through your fingers all the way down and just kind of, there's just something a little bit peaceful about that but think about even that one handful of how many grains of sand are in that and then you got a whole beach of it. Not only a whole beach of it but you got a whole coast of it a whole coast of it. You have a whole continent that has coasts of it. That you have other continents and you have other places. It just goes on and on and on and on. And this is what brings us to the, the marvel of who God is. An all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful and all-present God. And we just can't even get our hands and thoughts to it. And this says, David says, it brings joy to his soul. It brings joy to his soul. You know, these are these moments where it's just like, it's almost like the music can just keep playing and keep playing and keep playing and keep playing because you just want to stay in this spot of being in God's presence and knowing these things about God. And yet we also know that it doesn't bring in fear. It doesn't bring in the sense of judgment. Even though that we know God is a wrathful God, even though we know God's gonna bring judgment, it doesn't bring that into us because of what we know about who God is and what he gave in his son and what Jesus means to us. Now David didn't know Jesus yet, but he knew the Messiah was coming. And he knew that God was a good God that would give his Messiah as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. It was the hope that he had from all the way from Genesis when God said that, that, a, that a seed from this woman will come and will, will crush the serpent. And that is the hope that we have in today and we know it is because of Jesus. And because of that is true, the thoughts of God, knowing everything, the gods of God being all powerful, the gods of his presence, it should bring joy into our soul. That we just wanna stay in that moment and in that, that spot and in his presence. So David has two reactions when he thinks about all these things. His first, he comes in verse 19 through 22. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And I do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred and I count them my enemies. Now again, we've got to recognize the psalm uses the, this, uh, you know, this style of writing in, in a way that, that contrasts God versus those who reject God. We recognize that, that we are to love our neighbor and, 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 and Jesus points out very clearly, who's your neighbor? Well, it's, it's, it's the Samaritan, the one that the world tells you to hate. I don't want you to hate them, I want you to love them. And so David isn't encouraging us that we are actually to hate other people. What he's doing is he's saying, compared to who God is, I want nothing to do with those who, 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 who don't know God. I want nothing to be with those who pursue evil because I want to be more in the presence of God. I want to live in the presence of God. And so he's comparing these two things, and he wants nothing to do with evil or any of evil person. He doesn't want to entertain those things. Now again, this is difficult for us to grasp because we will say, well, you know, is it, is it us versus them? 
Well, do we see Jesus come in and he sits down with sinners and, and, and yet he, he dines with them? And so uh, how, how do we, again, this is a, a literary or a, a style that the psalmist is using to compare who God is to, to those who reject God and what David's choice is. I want to be in the presence of God. And I want to reject anything else that comes into that idea of being in the presence of God. Not only that, but then David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So not only is David saying, I don't want to associate with anything that is is evil because I want to be in the presence of God, but then David looks inward and says, God, any evil within me, I want nothing to do with. It's not just those that are around me, but it's, it's myself as well, and I want nothing to do with the evil in me, so Lord, search me, and if there's any evil within me that is leading me in a different direction, I, I want you to, to root it out. I want you to rip it apart. I, I want nothing to do with it. Because when I think about who you are, God, and I think about you're your, your, your all-knowing and all-seeing, and I think about your power, and I think about your presence, Lord, I want to be there. I want to be there. So David wants to continue walking and growing in God's way. He wants nothing to interrupt that. And in this moment, as David is is coming to this conclusion in the psalm, and as he is using the psalm as an act of worship, he recognizes all these things are to draw him in closer to God. So I, I don't know where we all are today. I know we have these call of worship that we come here at Refuge and we sing and we pray and we, we read scripture. It's all an act of worship before God. It's all to get, to get our minds and our hearts to be thinking of God, but I don't know how your week goes. You see, this relationship, this, this being with God, this understanding of seeing God for who he is and how it paints your world and how you view the world, it's so much more than what happens at one hour on a Sunday morning. It's every day of our lives. And every day of our lives, we are to be drawn into the presence of God and we want to reject anything that from the outside and anything from the inside that would push us away from being in his presence. And when we think about the presence of God, we are, are thinking about how God's omnipresence and omniscience and, and his omnipotent, all this draws us in. It doesn't push us away. And that you and I have been allowed to be in his presence in that sense because of what we understand the Messiah to be and who Jesus Christ is. And so if you feel like you've been distant from God, or if you feel like somehow God is against you, or you feel in some ways that God isn't all-powerful, or God isn't all-knowing, or God isn't uh, everywhere all the time, that he only cares about the big things and not the, not the little people like us, then I want you to reject those thoughts. I want to reject that narrative that's being played in your mind. And I want you to trust in God's word that who he says he is is who he is. And he wants to draw us in and to find shelter and comfort and refuge in him.